I just think it's really important to be very intentional and thoughtful about anything you're giving your child and to think about what your off-ramp is going to be for that supplement. Talk to your pediatrician and make a plan for like, what is my long-term goal here and how am I gonna achieve that goal and get my child off any additional medications they do not need. Hi everyone, welcome to the Parenting Translator newsletter and podcast. I'm Dr. Kara Goodwin, and I'm so thrilled today to be here with Dr. Krupa Playforth. Dr. Krupa Playforth is known as the pediatrician mom, and I feel like we are Instagram colleagues because we both share this mission of getting research-backed evidence into the hands of parents. So I'm so excited to have you here, and I have just so many questions for you. So Dr. Playforth, could you please introduce yourself? I would love to learn a little bit more about you and what inspired you to become a pediatrician. Yeah, so I'm a board-certified pediatrician and a mom of three in Northern Virginia. My kids are eight, five, and almost two, so I'm kind of in the trenches with like a lot of parents going through sort of the whole pandemic parenting thing. When I started medical school, I went in thinking that I was going to become a psychiatrist. I had done psych research on kids, which sounds a lot creepier than it really is, in college. Um, And so I worked in a baby lab and I thought, oh, obviously, you know, it's psychology. Like, I'm going to be a psychiatrist. This will make sense. It will fit together. And then I did my pediatric rotation and I realized, I think that the factor that brings it all together is not the psych, it's the kids. Because taking care of kids and taking care of families is just such a wondrous, fulfilling thing. And I, I mean, I haven't looked back. It's been really a very rewarding career. Amazing. So as a psychologist with three children, I know I thought a lot about clinical and research issues before becoming a mom. How did your pediatric practice change for you after becoming a mom? It completely changed. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think that uh, most people changed at a deep level when they become parents in terms of how they approach problems and the level of empathy that they have for other parents. I think before you experience some of these things, it's really hard to know how gut-wrenching it is when your child won't sleep or if they're really upset and you can't soothe them. I was a pediatrician for several years before I started having children, and I definitely was a little bit of a by-the-book, follow-the-rules type pediatrician. You know, the advice I give, sometimes I cringe when I think back to some of the advice I gave parents back then. You know, nothing was unsafe, but it was just not always as nuanced as I think the reality of parenting is. So then I had my kids and suddenly my oldest was one of these reflux babies who was failing to thrive and I was struggling with breastfeeding and, you know, put them to sleep drowsy but awake. Like all these things that I would say to parents suddenly just didn't fully make sense. And then the other thing is, you know, when your kid is sick and you're scared that something is deeply wrong with them, I mean, I have the pediatric knowledge to be able to analyze that situation objectively and it still floors me now that... When my kid is sick, I am no different really than any other parent. I can try and take a step back and look at it objectively. And sometimes if my husband says to me, what would you tell a parent in this situation that will help? But a lot of times I am just, you know, in that very primal emotional brain space that a lot of parents are when their kid is sick. So I think that what it's changed in terms of my practice is I just have a whole new level of empathy and kindness and compassion for what the experience of parenting can be like especially in a world where we are being barraged with tons of information and misinformation. And sometimes you don't know who to believe and where to find evidence. 
Yes, that is so true. I feel the same way as a psychologist. Before I had kids, it all felt so simple. It's like, well, this is what the research suggests. <laughs> so, so like, why would you not just follow the research? It's simple. It's easy stuff. And then, you know, of course, literally within a week of having my first, I was like, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is very hard. And do you feel like now that you have multiple children that what's also kind of always keeps you on your toes is that sometimes what worked for one kid really isn't what works for another. And like you have to constantly be adjusting the way you're doing things. So true. So true. Yeah. I'm pregnant with my fourth child and you would think I've like got it figured out now. <laughs> but I feel like every day I'm like, you know, my husband and I have a moment of like, how do we handle this? Like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I have so many questions for you. You know, I'd love to get into some of the research on supplements and vitamins and probiotics. So first I want to start off with what should parents think about in general when we're thinking about supplements and vitamins? By that, I mean non-medical treatments, like stuff you can buy off the shelf of a drugstore. What should parents know about these in general? I think that parents should be aware that the marketing industry is very smart and very manipulative and takes advantage of our innate anxieties as parents. You know, every parent wants to do the best thing for their child. We want our children to thrive, to be healthy, to have healthy immune systems, um, and to, you know, we all want to make sure that we are doing right by our kids. And sometimes, especially during a time of high anxiety, for example, going through an unprecedented pandemic, I think that the marketing industry capitalizes on the fact that we suddenly are not sure what the right thing to do is as a parent. So if you are given information about supplements, the bottom line is be suspicious. Think about who's giving you that information, why they might be giving you that information, what qualifications they have to give you advice about whatever it is that they're talking about. And what they're getting out of getting you to move towards a behavior where maybe you buy a supplement or not, you know, are they selling the supplements? Are they getting a commission? Be suspicious. I mean, it's such a, it seems harsh to think about it that way, but anyone can put anything on the internet. And there's a lot of claims out there that are not founded in evidence that makes a whole lot of sense. That is so helpful to know. So really be aware that people are making a lot of money off of parents with this marketing And is it true that supplements are not really very well regulated? Supplements are not regulated. The FDA does not regulate supplements. And so when you look at like Consumer Lab and Consumer Reports and when they're analyzing what is on a lot of these supplement bottles and then what is inside the supplement bottles, you know, what the labels say is not always what the pills contain. There's no standard, sort of nationwide standard that these supplement companies have to adhere to in terms of the claims that they're making, in terms of the doses that they're putting in, in terms of even, you know, some of them will say, oh, this is research backed, but is that research actually peer reviewed? Is it truly rigorous research? None of this stuff is well regulated. There are certainly companies out there that are trying to do a good job, but it's really hard to determine which companies are being scrupulous and which ones are not. Okay. Wow. That's very scary knowing that there's like absolutely very little regulation on Mm -hmm. these things that we could potentially be giving to our kids every day. So I'm very curious to know about what your thoughts are and what your understanding is of the research is on melatonin. I've struggled with the decision to give my own kids melatonin. You know, one of my kids struggles a lot with sleep. 
And I eventually gave in and gave her melatonin because I figured she was staying up way too late, not getting enough sleep. And I was like, there's also negative side effects of not getting enough sleep for her. So I felt very conflicted as a parent. So I'd love to hear what are your thoughts on melatonin? Is this safe? Is it effective? How do we make these kind of decisions as a parent? So let's talk about what melatonin is, first of all, all right? So melatonin is a hormone, and it's important to remember that you are giving your child a hormone, but it is a hormone that is produced in our brains um, in response to various environmental signals that tell us, okay, it is time to sleep. So it is normal for our bodies to produce this as a trigger for sleep. The circadian rhythm, like your sort of day-to-day rhythm, determines how much and when it is produced. And it's tuned into each individual person's wake cycle. When you take it exogenously, so when you take a pill that contains melatonin, you are giving your body that medication, that hormone, to help induce that trigger to sleep. Now, this isn't to say that it is completely unsafe. I think that the research on melatonin is still up and coming, especially in the pediatric population. What we don't know very rigorously right now is what dosages are right for what ages. Most pediatric medications are dosed based on weight. If you look at even something like Tylenol, ibuprofen, it will tell you the age on the bottle as a sort of general guideline, but really we are dosing based on milligrams per kilogram of weight. And when these studies are done on many of these supplements, they're A, done in adults, and then B, they sort of make some assumptions about the way children's bodies process different medications, different supplements that are not always the case. Children are not small adults. And assuming that a child's body is going to process a medication the same way as an adult's body is not always the right assumption to make. I think thinking about something like aspirin is really helpful. When you think about this, aspirin, especially baby aspirin, is something that adults take a lot. And we give to pregnant women now with the new data. But, uh, you know, it's widely considered to be safe. But in children, we do not give them any aspirin or salicylate-containing product because it increases the risk of a rare syndrome called Ray syndrome, which can be fatal. So children are not small adults. Their bodies do not necessarily process things in the same way. For some things, they probably do, but we don't always know. And without studying it, we can't tell. Now, getting back to your specific question about melatonin, there is data in adults that shows that melatonin supplements can be really helpful for things like jet lag. If you have a wrecked sleep schedule because your kid's been sick or you are doing shift work and things like that, it's not the best long-term solution to be giving your body that exogenous hormone. But as a temporizing measure, while you work on some of the other things that might be going on that may be contributing to a difficulty with sleeping, it can be certainly a really helpful tool to use. I like to think of most medications as just tools in your toolbox, but not necessarily the solution. Um, Because ultimately what you want to do is work towards getting your body to be producing the right amount of that hormone at the right time long term, because obviously sleep is something that your body's going to need for the rest of your life. In terms of pediatrics, We do use melatonin in certain populations, in neurodivergent populations, and it is considered to be safe as a way to help some of those children obtain good, high-quality, consistent sleep. Sleep and sleep deprivation also has serious consequences. So when I think about a supplement for myself and for my kids, I always think about it in like sort of one big frame. 
and that is to look at risks and to look at benefits. Just because research hasn't been done yet on something doesn't mean it's necessarily risky, right? You have to weigh what benefit it's going to be giving you against what risk you're potentially taking on by giving your child or taking that supplement yourself. In a population that is neurodivergent, that has issues with circadian rhythm disturbances, the benefit of melatonin may well outweigh the risk. In an otherwise healthy child that is struggling long-term with sleep, it may be helpful over a short-term period of time, and the risk over a short-term period of time is probably quite low. But you also want to be thinking about what else may be contributing to that child struggling to sleep. Does that make sense? Yes, that is so, so helpful. So if you need it to kind of get you through a rough patch, it can be helpful, but also think about what else you can do. And I would assume that would be like bedtime routine, you know, making sure that the child has sufficient time to calm down, reducing screen time at night, like stuff like that, that exactly has no side effects. And sometimes, you know, it may be your child's on ADHD medication and you maybe need to adjust the time that you're giving it or to adjust to something that's a little bit shorter acting if you're finding that it's impacting their sleep at the end of the day. A lot of older kids need to take like a little boost of an ADHD supplement, like a shorter acting medication after school to help with after school activities and homework and things like that. But maybe you change the dose or you change the timing if you can so that it then also doesn't interfere with sleep particularly for that population, I mean, sleep deprivation can lead to symptoms that look a lot like hyperactivity and attention deficit. And so you want to make sure that you are optimizing everything else, as well as taking whatever medications you need to optimize your child's health. I think we can't really talk about melatonin without also talking about the recent safety reports on it, because there have been overdoses. Melatonin is often It often comes in a formulation that is a gummy, which is obviously very tempting for children. And I think because something like melatonin is not as, is much more easily available for a parent, it's easy to think of it as safe just because it is so easily available, but it is certainly possible to overdose. And those overdoses can be quite serious, especially if a child gets a hold of a bottle. So you still want to treat it like any other medication, but also we don't have optimal dosing information for children. That is such an important, important fact that, you know, we don't know which dose is actually appropriate based on the child's weight. And also, you know, you can see how tempting it is for a child if they Mm -hmm. have this whole gummy thing is beside their bed and they're like, well, I'm just going to eat all of them. So remembering that even though it is available on the drugstore shelf, you should still be careful. You should store it in a place that's safe. And a lot of melatonin supplements actually have cannabinoids, CBD in it too. And Children should not be taking CBD. There's absolutely no safety data. There's really no reason that they should be on it. So if you have combination gummies or inadvertently have purchased a combination gummy that has melatonin and CBD in it and then your child gets a hold of that, that has consequences. Yes. I've seen those news reports and that's very scary because we have no research on CBD in young Mm -hmm. children. I also kind of want to make clear that This is not an attempt to guilt a parent that is giving their child melatonin, right? I just think it's really important to be very intentional and thoughtful about anything you're giving your child and to think about what your off-ramp is going to be for that supplement. You know, try and make a plan for an off-ramp. It doesn't mean that it won't be beneficial for them in the short term, but talk to your pediatrician and make a plan for like, what is my long-term goal here and how am I going to achieve that goal and get my child off any additional medications they do not need? 
That's the way to think about it. Yes, that is so helpful. So what about other supplements? Like I know when I was little, I took a Flintstone multivitamin and now it seems like that has fallen out of favor. So what do you think about giving a child multivitamin or is there any situation when you would advise that? So vitamins are a hot topic because many of us grew up on vitamins. I took Flintstones as well. I know some people like, like, like have this sentimental feeling about that chalky taste, but I despised it. Um, <laughs> but I grew up in the middle of Africa and Flintstones were even available there, oh, wow. which says a lot, right? <laughs> that really does. But vitamins are an example where there's like really the idea makes so much sense, right? Like children are picky eaters and you think, I know that they need this balanced diet of fruits and vegetables to be healthy. I mean, that is something that we know for a fact. So you immediately assume that if your child is not getting that every single day, that maybe the best way to make sure that they're still getting those nutrients that you know that they should have for their bodies to function optimally is to give them a supplement. The trouble is the data doesn't support that giving your child those supplements, if they are not actually legitimately deficient, makes any difference. I mean, and vitamins can be quite expensive. Most of the time, all they're doing is causing your child to make very expensive pee. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say pee. <laughs> I'm allowed to say pee. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's expensive urine. In a child that is legitimately deficient, then yes, absolutely, that there is a benefit to giving them the specific vitamin that they might be deficient in. Now, there are certain populations where that is something we do see. And one example is a vegetarian or a vegan child. Vitamin B12 is something that you can really only get through animal products. And so if you are a plant-based eater, your child is a plant-based eater or has food allergies that lead them to be missing an entire food group, then for those children, there is a reason to be thinking about giving them some specific vitamins like a B12. My children are vegetarian and they do okay with non-meat animal products. But when I was breastfeeding my youngest, he had a milk protein allergy, which meant that I was suddenly the only animal product that I was able to consume. I'm vegetarian too, was eggs. And there's only so many eggs that you can eat. To, and I ended up deficient in B12 and that was symptomatic from it and had to give myself B12 shots every month. That is a situation where the B12 makes a huge difference. Iron is another one where, you know, a lot of kids may have some degree of iron deficiency. It's something we track as pediatricians. You know, we routinely will check for anemia in younger children. For the majority of other vitamins, even a picky child will be still getting what they need. A child does not have to eat a right balance of fruits and vegetables every single day. My children are picky. They're, I mean, my children eat like normal children. Yeah. And, you know, no matter what I do or say about it, like there are some things you just can't fight. And that is the reality of parenting. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I try to look at it over a week rather than on a day-to-day basis. And over a week, their eating kind of tends to even itself out. And it also means that I am less anxious about like everything they have consumed every single day. So that's the way to think about it. You know, if your child is like not consuming an entire food group because of a food allergy, that is something you want to talk to your pediatrician about. Like, do they need something? But even a picky child, even a picky toddler otherwise should not really or does not really get any benefit out of taking a vitamin. That is so interesting. So you should ask your pediatrician whether your child has any deficiencies. And if there are no deficiencies, you just shouldn't worry about the multivitamin. 
Now, the obvious next question is, well, should I have my pediatrician check? Yeah. Right? (laughs) (laughs) If your child is otherwise growing well, thriving, doesn't seem like they're having any clinical issues, then I think it is more traumatic to try to get the blood draw than not. And I'm not sure that there's necessarily any benefit. If your child is failing to thrive, you know, another category of children that might benefit from a vitamin supplement would be a child who has a malabsorption or a chronic illness that means that they're not getting, you know, as much of some nutrient as they need. And so for those children, your pediatrician should be on it. Your specialists should be on it. If you're not sure and you just kind of want somebody to look at your child's diet and really give you a little bit of peace of mind, nutritionists, dietitians, they are massively underutilized as resources. But especially now, one of the benefits of the internet and of the pandemic, it's a silver lining of the pandemic, I think, is that a lot of these resources are accessible online. You know, a lot of registered dietitians moved to providing online services. And so these services, these resources are more easily accessible than they were even five years ago. And so I think parents should seek that out if they're a little bit concerned about it. And hopefully that will give them the peace of mind they need. That is so helpful. Yeah, I don't think a lot of parents think about seeing a nutritionist for a child. So that's very helpful advice. So what about probiotics? I've heard a lot um, in the news media about probiotics recently, like questioning how valuable they are. So what's your take on probiotics? So the data on probiotics is not as robust as the probiotic companies would have you believe. (laughs) We do have some data and it is such a hot topic. This, This idea of this gut microbiome is such a hot topic of research right now that I actually, my gut instinct, no pun intended there, is that we will find in time that there are benefits to taking probiotics. Now, the question then becomes which probiotics and how much gives you the benefit, right? And that's the question that we don't have a great answer to right now in most situations. We do a little bit. So in certain populations, if you think about, you know, your standard colicky baby, the we have data that probiotics can decrease the duration of crying in children who are diagnosed with colic, which is a little bit of sort of a wastebasket diagnosis. I mean, it's defined, but a lot of different things can look like colic in a baby, right? Because they're just crying. There's data that supports the use of lactobacillus reuteri in that population. And some parents find it helpful. Again, you still want to talk to your pediatrician about whether or not to use it. And you want to make sure that any product that you purchase is coming from a reputable company that you trust, that you feel like has scrupulous business practices and cares about making sure that what is on the label is what matches what is inside the bottle. The other area where we do have some research in the pediatric population when it comes to probiotics is in gastroenteritis, so infectious diarrhea. And there's a little bit of data that suggests that supplementing with a probiotic during that type of diarrheal illness can decrease the duration of the illness, but it's only by a few hours. Wow. And so then you sort of get back to this question of risks versus benefits. If it's really only going to decrease their symptoms by a few hours, is it actually worth the risk of taking, you know, giving them something that isn't that well regulated? A little bit of a judgment call there. 
But for other things, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, I give my child probiotics for their behavior. I give them for their sleep. Social media is rife with these kinds of claims. I wish desperately that we had a supplement that could help with some of those things. But unfortunately, I think that at the end of the day, what helps with a lot of these issues is harder than giving a supplement. It takes more work than just giving your child a pill. Yes, but how nice would it be if we could just give our kids a pill that changed their behavior? <laughs> it would be so great. Or if you give you know, your child a pill that's really just going to help them feel better, right? If you're like struggling with some kind of issue. I mean, we all want our kids to feel better. And, and it is tempting to believe the claims of these companies because we do want our kids to feel better, to thrive. Like it makes sense. I understand why it's tempting. I really do. So speaking of supplements that might impact mood, what do you think about omega-3 supplementation? Would you ever recommend that? I think the data on omega-3 is still in its infancy. We know that omega-3 fatty acids are important substances that the body needs for a range of different things. And that includes things like cognition, neurologic functioning. There's some studies that show that maybe there's an impact on certain types of neurodivergent behaviors, but I'm not fully convinced by the data we have because I think that there are other studies that show that omega-3 supplementation does not have that impact. And you still kind of run into the same issue of how much do you give and where do you get it from? I think if you can try to incorporate dietary sources of omega-3 fatty acids, you know, Fatty fish, shellfish, some nuts and seeds and vegetables do have some omega-3 fatty acids, but they're not quite as bioavailable as they are from other dietary sources like fish. I think if you can get it through the diet, there's probably worth doing, but I also wouldn't stress about it. Over time, if there is more data, obviously I will share it, you will share it, and then maybe the recommendations will change I don't know. What do you think? Like you've, you've looked at this data. You know, I'm not fully convinced by the data either myself. There's part of me that thinks like, well, it doesn't hurt. But yeah, I agree. I'm not fully convinced that this will have a major impact. You know, I've seen a lot of formulas and milk that are supplemented with omega-3. Would you say that extends to that as well? I think if it's there, I, I agree with you. It's probably not going to be harmful to your child. Do I think that you should pay an exorbitantly more money for it? Maybe not. I'm not sure I'm convinced enough for that. But if it's there and if it's something you're purchasing anyway, and it also has a little bit of the omega-3s, I mean, it probably isn't harmful. Yeah, it's not going to hurt. So what about elderberry, vitamin C, other sorts of immune support? You know, I know this podcast is coming out in the summer and a lot of us are traveling and we're thinking, how do I make sure my child doesn't catch every terrible thing on the plane? So what do you think about those kind of supplements? Is it worth it? Let's talk about what immune boosting is, first of all, and if it's really a thing, because it's become such a hot topic through the pandemic, you know, especially this year when your kids are just like endlessly sick. I mean, my kids have been sick probably every two to three weeks, sometimes more frequently than that. And it is exhausting. And it takes so much out of me as a parent because I catch it all. And not to mention like then the other kids catch it. Like 
it's just hard. It has been a really rough winter. And so it's sort of the same concept. If there was a pill, if there was something I could give my kid that I knew would help decrease this burden on us as a family, I mean, it's very tempting. Yeah. But our immune systems are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. And then a lot of the supplement companies would have you believe they are designed to function optimally. And you don't want to boost them beyond that. That's what an autoimmune condition is, right? Like it is an immune system that is overactive and starting to blindly attack things it shouldn't. Does a supplement cause that level of boost? Probably not, but I'm not sure that it really helps either. We do have some information and some data that supports supplement use in adult populations. Elderberry is one of these that has been shown to have some beneficial effects when it comes to recurrent illness in adults. But we sort of get back to the same issue of, okay, but do children process it the same way? Is the dosing the same? How can you figure out what the dose is for a two-year-old versus a 10-year-old? What is the right dosing for each population? Because you don't want to be giving something that isn't going to give you the effect that you're seeking. When it comes to immunity, it's sort of important to remember that these recurrent illnesses are not a sign that the immune system is not working. They're actually a sign that our kids' immune systems are doing exactly what they're designed to do, which is to recognize illness, to fight the illness, to develop a blueprint for the future when they're exposed to this illness again. It's not like we're dealing with a world full of immune deficient children. We're dealing with a world full of children whose immune systems are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. It's just really taxing on us. Yes. And it would be so great to reduce the number of illnesses. I can't can't tell you enough if there was an easy way to do it, I would definitely choose that way out. The best way to do it is the simple stuff. You wash hands, keep your kid home when they're sick. I mean, I know that's not that easy to do if they're sick endlessly and you also are a parent that has to function and do other things. But wash hands, you minimize exposure to sick people, you try your best to keep them physically active, to give them nutrients to offer them nutritious food. We have evidence about vaccination. That is one of the most important things you can do to optimize your child's immune system because it's artificially giving them the blueprint to then fight some of these illnesses, right? Like you're just giving them the body the plan so they know how to do it. All the preventive health stuff that we talk about, it's not sexy. None of that stuff is sexy to think about or talk about, right? But it's the stuff that actually has data that shows that it works. Yes, that's true. Not sexy, not exciting, but it actually works. So what about supplements for neurodiverse children? We've touched on this a little bit, but are there any supplements that are shown to have a positive effect for neurodiverse children, like children with ADHD or autism that parents should consider? I think what's tricky about the category of neurodiverse children is that there is so much diversity within that category. It's really easy to just assume that like one child who has ADHD is the same as another child who has ADHD and one child who is on the spectrum is the same as any other child. But any parent who has experienced this will tell you, you know, that their child is unique. And that's actually true of uh, neurotypical children as well. Like every child is unique. For certain types of conditions, we know that something like, for example, melatonin in a child that is struggling to sleep because of their underlying issues 
melatonin can help them sleep and then sleep then has the domino effect of helping across a myriad of different behavioral functions. I do sometimes recommend melatonin in those in that situation the benefits outweigh the risks. But it's something we always talk about because a parent really needs to have all that information to be able to make that judgment call because they're the ones that know their kid the best. But I think it's really tempting for a parent whose child is struggling with any kind of issue to really seek some solution that's just going to fix the problem. And oftentimes the solution is just more complicated than that, you know, focusing on behavioral resources, focusing on therapy, focusing on making sure that they're getting other medications that are going to help them thrive. Doing all of those other things is probably the most important thing that will help your child. And then any supplement that you do may be a little bit of gravy on top, but I don't think it's going to be the defining thing that's going to change your child's experience or yours as a parent. Interesting. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the same. What I always recommend to parents is that the research on supplements is mixed, but the research on behavioral therapy and you know some medications, it depends on what the child's diagnosis is, that research is very robust and consistent. So it's like, if you, you know, have the time and the energy to also do these supplements and there's no negative side effects, that's great. But like, put your eggs into the basket of like what we know works. Exactly. I think that, you know, if you only have so much time and energy, which we all do, like (laughs) invest in behavioral therapy, because we know that does work. There's sort of a natural fallacy to this, right? Like it's so tempting to think that just because something is natural, it's better. And that's true for all kinds of supplements. It's not always the case. And I like what you said about putting your eggs in the basket that we know is going to yield the most result. Yes. I think that's such an important point you make about these supplements being natural. Because I think that's a term that these supplements use in their marketing is it's all natural but it's like, what does that really mean? You know, it doesn't have a, def- it does it's, or organic even can mean so many different things. Arsenic and cyanide are natural, but yeah. it doesn't mean they're healthy, you know? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> natural does not necessarily mean that it's harmless. So the major takeaway that I'm getting from you about all of this is that it's pretty complicated and it's nuanced and that There isn't exactly a pill that's going to be a cure-all for all your problems you're having, Mm -hmm. but there may be some supplements that are helpful and you always have to think of the risks and the benefits. Mm -hmm. And this nuanced message that I'm getting from you is not what I typically see on social media. (laughs) So I'm so curious, okay, how can we as parents, there's so much out there you know, we don't always have access to our pediatrician, but we mm-hmm. ha- always have access to social media and the internet. So what advice do you have for parents on finding medical advice that is actually legitimate, you know, when it's the middle of the night and you're having these problems and you don't know what to do? Like, how do parents know what to trust and what not to trust? Credibility is important. And frequently, credibility comes with qualifications. Parents embrace social media way before physicians did. and. Unfortunately, what that meant is that there was this sort of vacuum of information and a lot of people without appropriate qualifications kind of jumped in and started creating content and making themselves seem like 
good resources when really if you took the step back and you looked at things objectively, those people didn't necessarily have the qualifications. The other thing to know about social media, again, it's sort of the same message of be suspicious. Social media, it is easier to grow on social media if you are black and white, not nuanced, and you're saying controversial things. Those are the people that are going to grow the most and potentially have the biggest following, which is unfortunate because then those are the people that social media platforms will show parents. I think more and more physicians are starting to recognize that if social media is where parents are getting information, then it is our responsibility to provide credible, evidence-based information that has nuance. I think a lot of physicians and other qualified healthcare professionals like yourself we don't necessarily get the same benefit of being clickbaity and therefore being shown to larger audiences because what we're saying is not always sexy and it's certainly not always controversial. And so it's harder for parents to find us, but it doesn't mean that those resources are not out there. The reason I created my website and my entire platform was because I wanted to combat that middle of the night Google search that most parents have experienced, including myself, if I'm honest, where, you know, it's the middle of the night and your child suddenly has a fever or it's Friday night because, of course, they're always going to get sick on a Friday night. And you're like, OK, they have a fever. Like, what do I do now? Do I panic? Do I need to go to urgent care? Do I need to go to the ER? What if the fever is like 105? Like, do I need to panic now? That feeling, if you go onto the mom's group or the internet, like you are going to find people that are like, well, of course you should panic. It's 105. My kid had a seizure when they were 105. Like you're going to find that selection of information and it's not going to help. It's all fear mongering. What you want to do is seek out resources from people who have credibility and qualifications and really aren't always saying the sexy thing. People who are more committed to saying the evidence-based thing than the sexy thing and focus on getting your information from those resources. I think that your platform is actually one of my favorites for this reason, because I think sometimes you'd say things that are like really not what social media or the status quo believes. And I'm sure you get like a lot of pushback from people about it. I do. I find that when I talk about COVID, for example, I get a lot of pushback. And there have been moments in my social media career where I've been very tempted to just stop because it can be very demoralizing to be out there putting out that information and having people attack you. But I just really strongly believe that it is the responsibility of qualified healthcare professionals to provide parents with information. I think that sometimes, like you said, you don't always have access to your pediatrician. Not everyone has great access to their pediatrician, or even when they do, those interactions are rushed and sometimes they feel dismissed. They don't feel like they have the space to ask all the questions that they have or that they don't feel like the healthcare provider is has the bandwidth to answer all of the questions that the parent has. And sometimes I think that there's also a general, I mean, some healthcare providers really don't seem to make the assumption that parents are smart. I think that they just feel like they shouldn't be questioned, but that balance is shifting. And I'm seeing more and more, especially pediatricians that are recognizing that parents are smart. They just care deeply and they want to do the right thing. So you want to find resources that help you do that. That is such helpful advice. <laughs> Really, really helpful to know, okay, who can I trust? Who can I not? And your account and your website is such a great example of somebody who has the credentials and also puts the power back in the hands of parents, you know, saying like, I understand you're smart and capable. Here's what yes. we know, you know, and now make your own decision. 
Thank you so much for all this advice. It's been so incredibly helpful. Where can parents find you if they want more information? I'm on Instagram and Facebook at The Pediatrician Mom. And I am also, my website is thepediatricianmom.com. For parents who are in the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area, I am opening a pediatric practice, hopefully later this year. Um, I'm going to keep it very small and intimate so that I can make sure that I am providing care to the standard that I expect for my own kids. And so that we're not creating this environment where parents are feeling dismissed and rushed and not heard. That's the goal. That sounds amazing. That sounds really <laughs> amazing because it's not always the case with pediatricians, unfortunately. No, it's it's a shame. I think most pediatricians want to do it. I'll be honest. They just aren't in a system that allows for that. Yeah. Which is tragic. It is very unfortunate. Well, thank you so much for coming on and answering all the many, many <laughs> questions I had about supplements. This is so incredibly helpful. And I know it'll be helpful to other parents. So I can't thank you enough. I know we were going to talk about elderberry and vitamin C and all these things. I actually have like free resources on my website that I, I go through all the data on elderberry, especially in kids. And I have a free download on immunity. And like I go through the data on the main immune supplements that are available. And like, really, what does the data actually show? And all of that information is free. Everything on my website is free. So amazing. So go to your website for more. I know I will be digging into that later as well. <laughs> Well, thank you again. This has been so helpful. And thank you everybody for tuning in to the Parenting Translator newsletter and podcast. Listen next week for more research back tips for parents. Thank you. Parenting Translator is a nonprofit organization, so all of these podcasts and the information they provide are given to you for free. If you would like to support our work, please subscribe to this podcast and rate and review it. Thank you so much.